I'm Matthew Moore, and you're listening to In His Name, the Deluxe Edition. Early in my research, I kept coming across the same name, Daniel K. Williams. And as I was using key terms in searches for my research, article after article with his name on it popped up. I ended up citing two different articles as well as his book, God's Own Party, in the research paper element of my thesis. And our conversation was really influential in providing greater detail for some of the bigger ideas and topics I was working on. Our conversation was technically two different interviews a week apart. I've combined the two interviews together, but you'll notice about 20 minutes in, the chronology of our topics and conversation jumps back in time. That's why. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. Think of it like the annotated notes of the conversation. This one jumps around a lot, so I promise you the newsletter is really helpful. Link is in the show notes. Okay, here's my interview with Daniel Williams. If you will start by giving me uh, your name and your title, and we'll just kind of get going from there. Okay. I'm Daniel Williams. I'm a professor of history at the University of West Georgia. And uh, give me a little bit of background on your research and your area of expertise. I studied the history of American religion and politics. My first book was called God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, and I published that in 2010 with Oxford University Press. It essentially examined the making of the Christian right, the alliance between evangelicals and the Republican Party uh, from the 1950s uh, up through the early 21st century. Uh, My second book looked at the history of the pro-life movement uh, in its early years, the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, I've also written a book uh, on the 1976 presidential election between Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. Uh, And I've written a wide variety of other uh, articles and publications on uh, Christian right, conservative politics, and this uh, intersection between religion and policymaking in recent America. Yeah. Um, Let's start our conversation here with Billy Graham. Can you give some background on his early career leading up to uh, when he began to start influencing folks in politics? Billy Graham... Uh, was a Southerner uh, from the state of North Carolina who was involved in what was then called the fundamentalist movement uh, in the United States. It was a group of conservative Protestants who objected to the liberal theological turn in uh, American mainline Protestant churches. And that led him eventually to Wheaton College. Uh, He had some other educational destinations before that. But when he arrived at Wheaton College in the suburbs of Chicago, in the late 1930s and early 1940s, he became involved uh, in Youth for Christ, and but more importantly, he became involved in a national evangelical movement. This was a movement of people who were bothered by fundamentalist separatism. They were conservative Protestants. They wanted to influence the nation in ways that they felt the fundamentalists had not uh, ever since the Scopes trial. And so on the one hand, He was very interested in uh, the latest technology. He was was interested in uh, mass evangelism, in reaching the world for Christ. And on the other hand, he still retained the fundamentalist core convictions when it came to views about the inerrancy of scripture, 
views about the necessity of personal faith in, in Christ. And because this was happening during World War II and then uh, at the beginning of the Cold War, his view of personal salvation and his view of uh, what needed to happen in reaching the nation for Christ became very closely tied to the civil religion of the era. That is the, the Cold War concerns, the concerns about fighting communism, the concerns about making sure that uh, American families remained intact, concerns about American morality. And so eventually, uh, actually not too long into his preaching career, because his first mass evangelism campaign that really was noticed came in 1949, uh, not coincidentally in September of 1949, the same month in which uh, the Soviet Union developed the atomic bomb, which was the focus of some of his preaching at that crusade. But then only three years later, he became interested in the campaign of, of Dwight D. Eisenhower for president. And so that led to a, a lifelong alliance between uh, himself and the Republican Party and, and by extension between the emerging evangelical movement and the Republican Party as well. In your book, God's Own Party, you share a story about Graham trying to make his presence known with then-President Harry Truman. Um, and you talk about him showing up in a flashy suit, um, and, and Truman wasn't terribly impressed with, with Graham. Um, what, did, what did the two of their relationship look like? Truman never really liked Graham. Of course, he was president before Graham had become the sort of person that he would be uh, from Eisenhower on. That is, when Eisenhower, uh, when rather when Graham showed up at the White House, uh, he pressed for an invitation. It was not willingly extended, but Truman's advisors suggested that he really should meet with this evangelist. And so Truman came with some skepticism. Truman was a, a plain spoken Baptist, but a Baptist of a of a liberal sort and someone who really didn't uh, like traveling evangelists. He didn't really like people who were pretentious in any way. Uh, he was famous for uh, his uh, rather terse uh, explanations, I guess, when, uh, when people tried to put on airs. And so from the, from the beginning, it seemed that Graham rubbed him the wrong way. And things became worse when Graham then spoke to reporters after the meeting. Uh, they recreated a, a prayer scene on the, the White House lawn, and Graham divulged the, the contents of the meeting with the president. And so uh, Truman never liked him and never really forgave him for that. Uh, but his relationship with Eisenhower, I think, was, was rather different. He became a little bit more sophisticated in how he interacted with others. Plus, he became much better known. Yeah, and you note that that Eisenhower really took on Billy Graham. And in fact, uh, you, you point out that uh, Billy Graham actually baptized Dwight D. Eisenhower after uh, some, uh, a little bit of time after his inauguration, right? Well, they did have a very close relationship. Um, Graham was someone who had actually urged Dwight D. Eisenhower to run for president. And he became a spiritual advisor of sorts to Dwight D. Eisenhower. He helped him find his church uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, Eisenhower had not been a, a very avid churchgoer for most of his life. He had been, uh, after growing up in a, a sectarian religious home, he had rebelled against that for most of his adult life. And so uh, Graham encouraged him 
to, I guess, create a religious revival using his presidency. That at least was the way that Graham phrased it. Eisenhower might have um, put it differently with a different audience. Eisenhower's own views, I think, were always more broadly ecumenical than Graham's. Uh, Eisenhower was not necessarily an evangelical Protestant. He was a Protestant, though, and he recognized the shared affinity that he had with Graham, the, the common view of American civil religion that they had. And so Graham could recruit evangelicals to support Eisenhower in ways that were not incompatible with Eisenhower's larger, more ecumenical goals. Yeah, it's interesting. When, when I when I think of Billy Graham, I don't think of someone as as him being someone who is relatively ecumenical. I, I you know, a lot of a lot of his preaching and a lot of his crusades were based around individual salvation and a personal relationship with Jesus. And and you talk a little bit about Eisenhower was the president who brought forth in God we trust on our money and put in one nation under God in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. But he didn't. Eisenhower didn't view that from a Christianity, personal individualism perspective, right? Right. Eisenhower very much shared the views of, I guess, the majority of mainline Protestant ministers at the time, which was that the United States was a Judeo-Christian nation, that religious faith was important, as he said famously, and maybe a little awkwardly, our system of democracy makes no sense unless it's founded on a deeply felt personal religious faith, and I don't care what it is. And what he meant by that, and it it was a bit of a clumsy phrasing of it, but what he meant was that within this broadly shared Judeo-Christian tradition, he really didn't care if someone was an observant Jew or was a Unitarian or was uh, a, a deeply devout evangelical Southern Baptist, that all of those were compatible with American democracy, but that what differentiated the United States from the Soviet Union was this generic faith in God and this belief that morality had something to do with religion and and that religion in turn shaped the country's values. And on that, Graham and Eisenhower, and by extension, a lot of mainline Protestants and Catholics could agree. And so while this alliance would change shape, certainly in the 1960s and afterwards, that is, it was not always going to be the case that uh, the evangelicals associated with Billy Graham would feel comfortable with mainline Protestant views. In the 1950s, there were enough shared civil religious convictions, that is, convictions that were shaped by the Cold War, that those doctrinal differences could, at least in some settings, such as this political setting, be papered over. So we move forward to 1960. Richard Nixon, who had been Eisenhower's VP for eight years, uh, decides to run for president. And uh, you note that Nixon calls on Graham to come to his vacation home in Florida. What what comes of that uh, invitation? Graham. Okay, so uh, let me let me back up. Um, so. With the vacation home in Florida, we're talking about um, the lead up to the 1968 race, right? 1960. Uh, The one that you note, you talk about Graham coming to his vacation home. Right. And then- uh, I think it was in 1967, if if it's the one that I'm thinking of. Oh, yes, yes, you're um, right. I'm sorry. Okay. So um, I'll 
I'll let you. Uh, uh, did you want to talk about 1960 or do you want to talk about 1968? Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Okay. Thank, thank you for clearing that the timeline up for me. I thought I had it right, but no, you, no problem. You know better than I do. <laughs> so in the 1960s, we see essentially a decade of Democratic presidents. Uh, in 1960, John F. Kennedy is elected the nation's first Catholic president, which is notable. Um, and then, of course, is followed on by Lyndon B. Johnson after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, what do evangelical leaders do during this decade of the 1960s? The 1960s was a, a transformative decade for evangelical politics in the sense that for many of the early years of the 1960s, there was a, a division, one could even say a growing division, between the smaller fundamentalist wing of the evangelical movement and the larger non-fundamentalist wing. The terms fundamentalist or non-fundamentalist change in meaning from decade to decade. By the early 1960s, fundamentalism was beginning to be associated with a, a highly conservative in both the theological and political sense strand of evangelicalism that was associated with Bob Jones University and a number of other separatist institutions. And this was very much not what Billy Graham or Christianity Today magazine or the National Association of Evangelicals wanted to stand for. Both groups were becoming increasingly Republican. Both groups were very much associated with conservatism, but the separatist wing of fundamentalism tended to be much more overt in its support for racial segregation. Whereas the mainstream wing of evangelicalism associated with Fuller Theological Seminary, Wheaton College, National Association of Evangelicals, Christianity Day Magazine, other institutions we could name, took the line in the early 1960s that voting rights for African-Americans needed to be protected, that some civil rights bill should be passed. Christianity Today Magazine endorsed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so the, the two groups splintered. And in fact, in 1964, there's, there's some evidence, though the polling that we have on this is not very good because this was before pollsters started to really screen for evangelical in the way that we might uh, do today. But nevertheless, there's, there's pretty good evidence that a sizable number of evangelicals, maybe even a, a majority of those mainstream evangelicals voted for Lyndon Johnson hmm. uh, in 1964. Um, there are some questions as to whether Billy Graham did. <laughs> uh, he was n notably very coy about his voting preferences in 1964. Yeah. But what happened in the late 1960s was that those two groups came together again over concern for, quote, law and order. That is, even though Billy Graham had, at least tepidly, and there, there's some debate as to how enthusiastic or not enthusiastic he was about the civil rights movement, but at least tepidly endorsed the cause of civil rights in the, in the early 1960s. Uh, he was certainly not in favor of resistance to the civil rights movement in the line of, say, Bull Connor or George Wallace. But what happened in the late 1960s was that after a lot of publicity concerning race riots in America's major cities and after growing concerns about a crime wave, as it was then called, and associated with that, perhaps uh, unfairly, but associated with that in many evangelicals' mind were other signs of moral decay, growing drug use rates, uh, the counterculture, 
changes in sexual values, all of those were lumped together. And so collectively, both the fundamentalists and the evangelicals could come together this time enthusiastically to back Richard Nixon in 1968 as the candidate of law and order. And in their minds, the candidate of moral order. That is, Richard Nixon would be the person who would restore the 1950s, restore the Eisenhower years, restore a, a sense of decency, a, a sense of strong families, a sense of moral righteousness in the nation. Yeah. And so uh, as we look at, at the the role that Richard Nixon had, that, you know, his his rhetoric of law and order certainly had its way. But one of the things that we that we see going into the 70s is uh, the this element of racial segregation and desegregation and integration and those sorts of conversations that are happening. Uh, in 1954, we had the Brown versus Board of Education case, which, of course, made racial segregation in schools unconstitutional. Uh, and in your writing, uh, you have a quote from Jerry Falwell that really stuck out to me. Uh, and it's a little long, but I want to read it. And it says, quote, if Chief Justice Warren, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court over this ruling, and his associates had known God's word and had desired to do the Lord's will, I am quite confident that the 1954 decision would never have been made. He also says, continuing in his quote, the facilities should be separate. When God has drawn a line of distinction, he should not attempt to cross that line. The true Negro does not want integration. He realizes his potential is far better among his own race. What do you think Jerry Falwell meant by this statement? In the late 1950s and early to mid 1960s, Jerry Falwell was a segregationist. He, like a number of other separatist fundamentalists in the American South, and that would include people like Bob Jones Jr. and like radio broadcasters such as Billy James Hargis. He believed that integration, racial integration was associated with communism or fellow travelers of communism. That the, the true Negro, as he said, and, and this seems to be a widespread belief, their, their belief was that that the quote, true Negro wanted racial separatism. They were happy with their own institutions. This was a widespread belief among whites in the American South. They would have said that all of the blacks that they had talked to didn't see a problem with this. And of course we recognize the way those conversations would work and what might yeah, have really absolutely. been going on. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like when you go to, uh, there's a, I, I lived in St. Louis for, for quite some time. And there is a, there's a house that Ulysses S. Grant, uh, owned and there's a there's a piece of there's a piece of signage that happens as you go through the tour and it says that uh, that the the slave help were actually quite nice to him and treated him well and it's like well no shit like what choice did they have <laughs> right you know and, and so it, it's this it's this whitewashing of history that I think is is pre is pretty problematic right yeah there was the common phrase outside agitators uh, that would be used and so uh, those were those were his views in in the 1950s and early 1960s. And as I said, he was a segregationist. One could even say a fairly strong segregationist. That changed in the late 1960s. Uh, in the late 1960s, he, like many other uh, conservative Protestants in the South, began tentatively 
making peace with at least some aspects of the civil rights movement. So he accepted his first African-American members of into his church uh, in the late 1960s. And by the, the end of the 1960s, he had completely dropped uh, all of his segregationist rhetoric. Now, were, was racial conservatism still a part of his political program? Certainly. I mean, it, it affected his view of, of Jesse Jackson, for example. He never, like most people of his, uh, of his particular, political, uh, particular religious persuasion, that is conservative wing of evangelicalism at the time, he, he would have been completely insensitive to any idea of structural racism uh, in the way that, that, say, liberal or mainline Protestants would have talked about it. And certainly his view of, of welfare programs not only would contribute to racial disparities, but, but would even involve what today we might view as, as um, racial stereotypes of one sort or another. Um, statements about welfare queens or something that uh, would have closely echoed Ronald Reagan's rhetoric. But by dropping the overt references to segregation, by actually uh, welcoming a few African-Americans into his church, a few African-Americans into his school in the 1970s, and, and working closely with a, a few uh, Black pastors who, were, who shared his, his social and political conservatism, he was able to market his political message in a way that transcended the parochial divisions that had once isolated the fundamentalists. So in the late 1960s, there's fairly strong evidence that he was a supporter of George Wallace, and that would limit his national influence. At the time, of course, he didn't really aspire to national influence. But by creating this alliance with evangelicals such as Billy Graham, and, and Jerry Falwell, to be fair, never really worked closely with, with Billy Graham. Billy Graham was always somewhat suspicious of Jerry Falwell's brand of the Christian right. <laughs> but ultimately, there was, a, um, there was a, a shared interest that I think allowed them to, to back Richard Nixon and then Ronald Reagan. Your book begins by talking about, uh, not necessarily begins with, but you talk uh, at first about Billy Graham and and his influence, or attempted influence with Harry S. Truman. Didn't have much luck there, but he did have some luck with uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower and played a pivotal role in getting him to run for president. Um, and you quote Billy Graham in the book by saying the Christian people of America are going to vote as a block for the man with the strongest moral and spiritual platform, regardless of his views on other matters. Do, what do you think Billy Graham meant by that statement? And how did that go on to influence evangelicals role in voting? In the early 1950s, Billy Graham and other conservative white Protestants were looking for a moral leader. One of the key themes that started well before the 1950s, but lasted well after the 1950s, extended through the entire 20th century and uh, is still in existence in the 21st century, is this theme among conservative Christians that there's a perception of moral decline in America and that that needs to 
be stopped in order to prevent America from experiencing the judgment of God. Billy Graham certainly shared that view throughout his entire ministry. And though his particular solutions to that problem would differ a bit from Jerry Falwell, that is, Jerry Falwell tended to emphasize a particular policy platform litmus test. So abortion, for example, uh, was a, a policy litmus test. You, If you're a conservative Christian and, and you have that litmus test, you vote only for those candidates that identify themselves as pro-life. Uh, Billy Graham was not thinking that direction in the 1950s, and I'm not even sure that he was necessarily thinking in that direction in the 1970s. But he did believe that politics could be the key to arresting the moral decline of America. And he wanted to see a, a leader that he could view as a spiritual force in Washington. Uh, as he said, he, he viewed Dwight Eisenhower as president as leading the nation in a religious revival. And he believed that, therefore, that the selection of the president mattered. And if the, pre if the selection of the president mattered from a moral direction, then he thought that he could organize Christians as a block to vote for a particular candidate that would provide that spiritual gravitas or that uh, relig religious reference point that evangelicals could endorse. It's interesting to me because when I... When I look back on the history of evangelicals being involved in voting and being politically minded, there has always, since since we're looking back at Graham, there's always been this sense of moral decline and that 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 we've gotten so far away from where we used to be. Was there ever a time in evangelicals' minds where we weren't in decline, where there was a, a moment where we could look back on and say, ah, yes, this is when America was peak morality. In the early 19th century, I think there was a sense of hopeful optimism among a lot of evangelicals. So during the Second Great Awakening, uh, people like Charles G. Finney and other revivalists sometimes believed that they were on the verge of experiencing the millennium. They were post-millennialists in the early 19th century. That is, they believed that, there, that the millennium that was prophesied in Revelation would be ushered in uh, partly through human effort in cooperation with God. And that this time of, of worldwide evangelization and moral uplift would, would then uh, lead at, at the end to the, uh, the second coming of Christ and, and the end of the world. But uh, they, they sometimes believed that they were, they were on the cusp of this millennium. Uh, so I think that at times, the evangelicals of the early 19th century would have said that their, their moment in world history was, was a moment that was more spiritual and more moral than any generation that had preceded it. But after the Civil War, the strand of people that would eventually become the, uh, the white evangelicals of the 20th century lost that idealism. Uh, they believed that they were losing the battle to secularism. Uh, they were losing the battle to liberal Protestantism. They were losing the battle to Catholicism and, and the new uh, religions, uh, mostly Catholicism, perhaps Judaism as well, that, that uh, immigrants were bringing in. So 
the context in which Billy Graham grew up and came to adulthood was a context in which his own religious circle had, first of all, lost their fight in the 1920s for control of their uh, of the nation's largest uh, or more, most influential northern Protestant denominations. All of the major northern Protestant denominations, uh, ranging from the uh, the what would become the the Presbyterian Church USA uh, to the uh, Northern Baptist Convention, later American Baptist Convention, um, what would become the United Methodist Church, all of those denominations became uh, comfortable with liberal theology that the fundamentalist movement of the 1920s opposed. Um, maybe even more significantly, the fundamentalists lost control of the nation's educational institutions uh, almost entirely. There were very few holdouts, mostly places like Wheaton College and then a handful of colleges that actually emerged in the 1920s as counterpoints to these, uh, these liberal Protestant or, or state universities, like uh, some of those fundamentalist institutions that started in the 1920s would have been places like Bob Jones uh, University. Uh, but those places tended to see themselves as, as outside the American mainstream. And in the 1940s, the National Association of, of Evangelicals believed that it could exercise more influence in American public life than the earlier generation of fundamentalists had. And Billy Graham was part of that movement. And Billy Graham certainly did have more influence. But I think there was this, this continual fear that Americans were losing their moral roots, that, that the nation was in decline. And though today we look back on the 1950s, and at least from the standpoint of a lot of people, they view it as a very socially conservative decade. That's not necessarily the way that Billy Graham and other conservative white evangelicals experienced it at the time. When I look, I'm 31. When I look back on Billy Graham and my experience with him personally, I look at him as being a evangelist first and someone who, you know, led the Crusades. You know, I think of him, especially as he got older, he became more of this, you know, elder statesman within evangelicalism and in the Baptist movement. Um, I have never thought of Jerry Falwell in that way. And I think Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham uh, are different in a lot of ways. And especially when we look at the way that they tried to make their impact on politics. Can you lay out a little bit of the differences between how Jerry Falwell approached taking a a stance in politics compared to how Billy Graham tried to do that? Sure. And I think you're right. They were very different people uh, in so many respects. Uh, first of all, for most of his early pastoral career, Jerry Falwell was associated with a self-identified fundamentalist wing of Baptists that through the 1980s were so conservative that they refused to affiliate with the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, eventually, Jerry Falwell would join the Southern Baptist Convention, but I think it's important to note that at the, at the beginning, that when we're talking about Jerry Falwell, especially in the, at the beginning of the moral majority, we're talking about a, a very different wing of, of evangelicalism and one that, that Billy Graham would have had little association with in the 1960s. 
And in turn, they would have had very little association with Billy Graham because they believed that he was too ecumenical. He was compromising on too many fronts. In addition to that, I think that there was a difference in their concern about politics. Billy Graham represented an older strand of evangelical politics that while it certainly leaned Republican and it was concerned about some of the same things that Falwell was concerned about. That is, it was in favor of a very strong stance against communism, a, a strong Cold War military buildup and throughout the Vietnam War, for instance, support for that war. It was also very concerned about perceived threats to the family. Billy Graham certainly preached about divorce and juvenile delinquency and premarital sex and everything else related to those particular issues in the 1950s and 1960s and beyond. So there was a lot of overlap in, in their concern, but nevertheless, Billy Graham's style of evangelical politics was never a litmus test style. Uh, he was always more attracted to character, perceived character of a politician. Now, by his own admission, he sometimes made disastrous judgments. And when he proclaimed Richard Nixon a moral leader, as he did on many occasions, yeah. he lived to regret that and admitted as much uh, at the time. And in his later autobiography, uh, he, he made no secret of the fact that he believed that he had been misled. So that style of politics of focusing primarily on, on perceived spiritual interest of the political leader, perceived uh, character is a bit different than Falwell. Uh, and it seems to me that starting with Falwell, nearly everyone associated with what would become known as the Christian right decided to adopt that, that litmus test style politics. In fact, that would later be the justification that many evangelicals who were ambivalent about Trump in 2015 and 2016 would give for eventually supporting him in the, the general election of 2016. And there were quite a few of those people, people like uh, James Dobson, for example, and, and uh, others who had said early on that they, they were deeply concerned about Donald Trump's character. But then when he became the Republican nominee, and it was very clear that, that there was going to be a choice between the Republican Party platform or the Democratic Party platform, they overwhelmingly, with only a few exceptions, and there were exceptions like Russell Moore and others, but, but in general, many of those people uh, decided to endorse Donald Trump because of the litmus test style politics. Well, it was Jerry Falwell and his generation that introduced that in the late 1970s. It was Jerry Falwell who came to his fellow conservative evangelicals with a 10-point platform and said that included uh, the right to life for the unborn, the uh, discussions of, of um, anti-gay rights and, and the precise opposition to anti-gay, uh, to gay rights might differ from year to year. It started out with concern about uh, gays teaching in public schools. It would later, um, 20 years later, move to, uh, to concerns about gay marriage. But, uh, but that was always an important part of the platform. There were other issues as well. Uh, support for Israel, for example, in the early years, strong opposition to communism, which would translate into support for Ronald Reagan's 
uh, Cold War military buildup in the early 1980s. And all of those were designed to advance a particular agenda. And the idea was if that legislative agenda was passed, then America could be brought back to morality. Whereas Graham's generation thought that if you had the right spiritual leaders, you could bring America back to, more, to God. I think the difference was that Jerry Falwell turned against Jimmy Carter. And so up until 1976, that quest for a moral leader seemed to unite a, a wide variety of evangelicals, not all, but many uh, across the political spectrum. But for the particular evangelicals who said, Jimmy Carter is morally objectionable because of his stance on abortion, it became really difficult to then continue making the claim that Graham had always made that if you had a good Christian in the White House, you would have a moral revival because no one really doubted Jimmy Carter's sincerity. No one questioned the fact that he was a Sunday school teacher, that he was a Southern Baptist deacon, uh, that he did believe in Jesus Christ as his personal savior, but they believed that he was badly misguided in policy. And so in 1980, many of them made the political calculation that they would be better off supporting someone who was less evangelical, but more aligned with their policy stances than someone who was a devout evangelical, but not aligned with their policies. Yeah, you do a really good job of articulating. The the thing that was sticking out to me as you were talking was Billy Graham perhaps was more interested in finding the right person that they could then mold to fit the role and to, to take on the the ideals and the policies that they wanted to put into place. Whereas Jerry Falwell had this 10 point platform, as you say, like these are, these are the things this person has to have. And regardless of, of whether or not they're the, the right person, as long as they fit this mold, then we'll put that person in that mold. Is that a fair way to, to explain the difference between the two? I think so. I think that's, that's a good summary. Cool. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Jerry Falwell uh, and his run-in with the FCC in 1975. Can you give a little bit of background on uh, on what happened there? Sure. Uh, in the 1970s, the empires of uh, the television empires of America's major evangelical televangelists were growing rapidly. And there was concern that the FCC would regulate Christian broadcasting, uh, Christian radio stations or uh, Christian television based on the, the fairness doctrine, the idea that you had to have equal time for alternative viewpoints. And the, there was the belief that among many broadcasters that that was going to destroy the industry. And so in order to protect their, uh, their right to free speech, freedom of, of religious speech as they saw it, uh, they mobilized to block this proposal. And they were successful um, that the FCC never issued that, that uh, mandate. But that particular fear galvanized the, the Christian right in, in other ways. At the time, it wasn't called the Christian right, but the, there was a fear that 
government, the federal government was going to regulate Christian enterprise. If it wasn't Christian broadcasting, as you said, with the FCC, it might be uh, the IRS mandate with, uh, in regard to desegregation that would regulate Christian private schools. And, or if it wasn't either of these things, uh, it might be something else. Uh, there was a growing perception among people like Jerry Falwell and others allied with him in the 1970s that while Christians, conservative Christians had been enormously successful at building uh, massive enterprises, whether it was a, a mega church and the mega churches were growing rapidly in the 1970s, whether it was a television empire, whether it was a radio broadcasting empire, or whether it was a, a Christian college or a, a Christian private school, all of these enterprises were the sort of enterprises that tended to, to experience high rates of growth in the 1970s. And they feared that the federal government was going to take those things away from them unfairly. And so they were on high alert for any government action that, that in their view, threatened what they had created. So to be clear, was there ever an incident with the FCC where they reached out to Tim LaHaye or they reached out to Jerry Falwell and threatened them in any way, shape or form? Or was it just this like preemptive action on the behalf of Jerry Falwell and other Christian folks who were in the media? Yeah. Um, my understanding of this, and this is, I'm trying to remember all the specifics because this is an area that I haven't, that, that particular question that you've asked is one that I haven't looked at at all uh, in the last decade. But my understanding of it, um, based on what I remember at the time, is that there were two college professors that wrote a journal article advocating that the FCC take this regulatory stance. And so there was a discussion of the regulatory stance, but there was never the FCC regulation issued. There was, um, there was therefore no letter that ever went out to an individual broadcaster. It was all very preliminary. But I think this tells us something because as I said, this is, this is the sort of scenario that has been replayed over and over. That is today on Facebook or other social media, every year, if you look at the right Facebook pages, you will find plenty of people who are up in arms about a perceived government threat to Christian liberties. Uh, and so this was true in the 1970s, obviously long before the internet and long before Facebook, but it's the same sort of thing. And this would play out in the 1980s. In the 1980s, there was a widespread view that the government was going to uh, crack down on church schools, especially those that were um, non-accredited uh, church schools. And, and there were stories that circulated that were often wildly exaggerated, I think, but but stories of, of police authorities coming in to, to um, arrest parents and take away kids for violating uh, school, um, school mandatory attendance laws, and they, they didn't count either homeschooling or, or non-approved uh, church schools as, uh, as a, an approved form of education. And I know that Tim LaHaye, for example, in 1984, in, um, would publish those stories, would publish these photos in a, a very sensational way, and then would encourage people to vote Republican to say, this is, uh, this is the threat here. So I think to, to fully understand the Christian right, we have to understand 
this fear, um, this, this fear that the, the federal government is an alien force, a hostile force, um, that while the, the Christian right has changed its incarnation in several ways in, in the last 40 plus years, that has remained more or less a constant theme. And I think it explains a lot. If, if you view the, the federal government as a hostile force, if you believe that, that conservative Christians are, are always on the verge of experiencing persecution, then perhaps it's easier to understand why certain po- other political actions are taken, why certain voting choices are made. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it, and it's, you know, it's so true that there's always this element of like, they're out to get us. And, and there's always, whether you want to call it fear mongering or always just this like incessant martyrdom of people are trying to take away what is rightfully ours. Um, and you know, whether it be, you know, Christian radio or our guns or whatever it may be, there's always some, there's always something that the government is trying to take away from people simply because they are Christians. And, you know, it's, it's a tactic that has lasted for 40 plus years because it works, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it's a, it's a genuine belief. I think for those on the outside, they, I think it's easy to imagine that there's, there's someone who is uh, creating this fear, you know, someone in the back room who's, who is creating political propaganda. And it's certainly true that there were mass, uh, there, there were people who were um, responsible for mass mailings who were, who were very good, who were early pioneers in direct mail campaigns like Richard Vigory, um, for example, or Terry Dolan, who certainly capitalized on this but they never could have capitalized on it if the fear hadn't already existed. They were the reason that 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 particular style of advertising was so effective was because there were already people who were only too ready to believe the worst about the intentions of the federal government who believed that they were were losing control of their country. And we might ask the question, well, why didn't they believe that they were losing control of their country? And I, I think for Many conservative white Protestants who lived through the late 1960s and the early 1970s, they could, they could see a number of social trends that were alarming to them. Uh, they could see uh, rapidly rising divorce rates. They could see uh, a sea change in public attitudes about uh, premarital sex and to a certain extent, even extramarital sex uh, in, in uh, public life. They could see um, the beginning of, of, uh, X-rated movies and uh, adult movie theaters and uh, the rapid spread of pornography um, of various forms. There were so many things that were happening in the 1970s, not to mention uh, increased public drug use and changes in gender roles. And, and so if you, if you are very concerned, if you, if you were someone that was very concerned about sexual morality and the sexual revolution and threats to traditional gender roles, then there was a lot to be concerned about in the 1970s. On the one hand, conservative evangelicals were increasing their influence. They, they were going to college in larger numbers. They were wealthier than their parents had been. Uh, they had larger churches uh, than had existed in the 1940s. 
Um, but at the same time, they felt like they, they were losing the battle for the culture. And that would remain true uh, for, for every generation after that, that there was this perception that was based on something plausible that indicated that they were, at least in certain areas, losing their battle uh, for the culture. And therefore, there was a constant fear that was perhaps all driving uh, the Christian right and, and driving this alliance with the Republican Party. Yeah. I want to move forward just a little bit. As we look at the 1978 midterms, this is the the last big general election prior to Ronald Reagan being elected in 1980. The 1978 midterms, Falwell had taken on the task of becoming a political activist. He began speaking about three moral issues, pornography, abortion, and homosexuality. Why do you think abortion was the issue that had the most resonance with evangelical voters? That's a great question. It's not a simple answer because evangelicals in the early 1970s had not seemed to indicate that abortion was their number one concern. But by the late 1970s, there was a a larger historical context that I think allowed them to see abortion as the quintessential evil, the major symbol of a nation gone wrong. So let's, I guess I'll try to unpack that a bit. For evangelicals in the late 1970s, abortion was very closely connected with Roe v. Wade. I would argue even that it was too closely connected with Roe v. Wade in their mind, because actually there was quite a bit of legal abortion in America immediately before Roe. So Roe v. Wade didn't create legalized abortion in America. But the way that evangelicals perceived the story was that legal abortion in America, and and they might even say in general, just abortion overall, began with Roe v. Wade. And so Roe v. Wade became this symbol of a Supreme Court that was secularized, that had abandoned God's law, and that was standing for evil. If you have people who already were suspicious of the federal government. It was very easy to latch onto that narrative, how to view the Supreme Court. So that's probably reason number one. The second thing is that the the major concerns of evangelicals in the early 1970s had to do with the sexual revolution and changes in gender roles. And certainly abortion, even though abortion hadn't been their major concern in the early 1970s, the fact that abortion in that decade was so heavily concentrated among women who became pregnant out of wedlock, that is more than three quarters of the abortions during the 1970s after Roe were um, abortions obtained by unmarried women. And so there there was in, in the mind of evangelicals, this connection between the sexual revolution and abortion. But perhaps the major reason uh, that abortion really resonated with them was because of the work of Francis Schaeffer, a Presbyterian missionary in Switzerland and a a theologian and a popular Christian writer. And in particular, it wasn't just his books that talked about abortion, though he did write books about it, but his films that really dramatized the issue and convinced evangelicals that this was the taking of human life, this was the killing of a human being in very graphic and objectionable ways. And so opposing abortion was a 
a moral cause in a way that transcended all of the other moral causes. The Equal Rights Amendment was objectionable, many conservative evangelicals believe, because it threatened the home, it threatened gender roles, but you couldn't take a picture of the Equal Rights Amendment in the way that you could of uh, an unborn baby. Uh, and so of all the causes that they, they championed, the cause of abortion seemed to have the, the clearest moral resonance. It was it seemed to be very easy to understand this issue as one in which uh, the Supreme Court had invaded the American home, had deprived people of the right to life, had deprived a class of people of the right to life. And with that framing of the issue, they could fight against secularism while making their chief focus the opposition to abortion. Because abortion, if you frame abortion as a Supreme Court issue, you link opposition to secularism, that is the secularization of the, of the Supreme Court, the abandonment, as they would see it, of religious values at the highest level with the sexual revolution and now with a great moral evil that they viewed as tantamount to the Holocaust. Those um, comparisons were often made. Evangelicals didn't invent that, those comparisons. They were circulating among pro-life Catholics, actually even well before Roe, but certainly evangelicals um, latched onto those and they could, could see uh, with the symbol of abortion, the, the symbol of everything that, that they opposed. Mm. How has the, how has the, uh, um, I'm trying to think how to, how to word this without coming across with condescension. Uh, how has the view of abortion changed? So like maybe the folklore of, of what an abortion really looks like, you know, early on, perhaps we would have said that, you know, life starts at birth and now it's life starts at conception. How have we seen the way that the pro-life movement has articulated itself change over the last 40 years? Um, I guess I'm trying to fully understand your question. So, um, Well, so, so when I, when I think, sorry, I'll try and clarify a little bit. So when I think of like, when I look at the views of, you know, what we were talking about, you know, right after Roe v. Wade, you know, the, the Southern Baptist convention was saying things like, you know, we're still willing to make exceptions for abortion in the case of rape, incest, you know, harm, you know, mortal, mortal damage to the mother. And now we've gone to a place where, you know, the moment of conception, anything past that is abortion. And this idea that like, it seems to have gotten more elevated in our views of, you know, we have gotten more adamant about why abortion is wrong and perhaps have told stories about just the, the, utter damage and regret that people have upon having abortions. Um, so, so really like how have we seen it go from this space where, you know, the Southern Baptist convention was saying, well, maybe under certain circumstances it's acceptable and we can live with those consequences to now any idea of even just thinking about the idea of having an abortion is the ultimate sin. Yeah. Um, I do think there's been a shift, as you said, and the shift has has been, I, I think, as you phrased it, between 
what I would view as a a moderate, moderately concerned uh, statement on abortion, which would characterize a lot of evangelicals before the early 1970s. That is, uh, there, there were very few evangelicals, there were some, but very few evangelicals that were what we would really characterize as consistently pro-choice uh, in the late 1960s or early 1970s. But the while evangelical views on abortion ran the entire spectrum from full permissiveness to absolute opposition, the vast majority seemed to come down uh, about where Billy Graham and some other evangelical magazine editors of the 19, early 1970s came down, which was to, to say that there might be some exceptional cases in which um, abortion could be justified, that certainly fetal life had great value, but it was unclear in their view that it, it was a it was a full human being in the way that that a life that a, a baby would be immediately after birth. Um, at the very least, they believed it was potential life that was created by God and therefore worthy of protection in most cases. Um, but they also thought that there might be some uh, some concerns that a, a woman would have severe health threats, uh, rape or incest that that might justify. Um, the taking of a, a created life or created potential life. Um, and that's probably the way that they, they would have looked at the issue. They would have seen, um, they would have entertained the possibility of, of very modest expansions in, in the grounds for abortion under state law in those states that had made abortion legal only when a woman's life was threatened. But once that, once the abortion debate expanded beyond liberalization and actually moved into the realm of a, a debate between those who wanted to see full legalization at the very least in the first trimester, uh, but, but no, no substantial governmental restrictions on abortion uh, in at least the first trimester, maybe the second trimester too, and those people who um, opposed abortion altogether, which at first had been disproportionately Catholic uh, pro-life movement, they, within a few years, joined the, the pro-life side. And in doing that, as, as abortion became more of a debated issue in the, in the country, more of a polarizing issue, they embraced a lot of arguments that had not initially been evangelical arguments. They had come from the Catholic Church. In some cases, those one could make the plausible claim, I think, that those, those Catholic arguments reflected um, continuity with, uh, with a deeper intellectual and uh, much older Christian tradition. So it's not necessarily clear that the the evangelical stance of the 1960s was the, the most authentic um, Christian tradition from a historical standpoint. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's, that can be debated and that's the subject for, you know, longer conversation. Um, but I would say that if we look at this immediate time period that we're looking at this, the post-war period, um, there clearly was a lot more thought given in evangelical circles to, 
fetal life than there ever had been before. So in 1970, if you had asked most people in a Southern Baptist church to picture a fetus in their minds, a number of people might've drawn a blank. Fetal photos were not that common in 1970, particularly outside of pro-life circles. But of course, after the 1980s, if you'd asked people in a gathered for worship in a Sunday, on a Sunday morning in a Southern Baptist church to picture fetal life, instantly in their minds, everyone would have uh, a picture ready at hand. Everyone knew what a, what a fetus looked like. And everyone, um, for the most part, was uh, quite sure that it was a full human person um, created by God with, with full value. So I, I do think that had an effect on cultural thinking, popular thinking. Um, it's played out to a certain extent in um, laws about uh, prenatal injury. Um, that's really beyond the scope of my immediate investigation with the history of the Christian right. Yeah. But I do think that, that there is, there is, there's no question that for the last few decades, cultural thinking about fetal life has informed conservative American politics and certainly conservative ev evangelicalism um, to a, a much greater degree than um, it did uh, before Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump off the topic of abortion uh, for now. Um, do you see any differentiation in the political viewpoints of white evangelicals today and the Republican Party today? Is there any is there any space between those two? I think that white evangelicalism is actually going through a political fragmentation today. So I would say that the there is no centralized Christian right in the way that there was in the 1980s and 1990s. In the 1980s and 1990s, it would be easy to answer that question by saying, well, let's look at the platform of the moral majority or let's look at what Ralph Reed and Pat Robertson are saying in the 1990s with the Christian coalition, or even in the presidency of George W. Bush, let's, let's find out what Richard Land is saying at the Southern Baptist Convention, or what is, uh, what is James Dobson saying on Focus on the Family. But today, if we look at the Southern Baptist Convention, the, the head of the Southern Baptist Religious, um, Ethics and Religious Liberty um, Committee is Russell Moore, who has publicly opposed Donald Trump from the very beginning, has publicly stated that he has never voted for Donald Trump. Um, we have other popular Christian writers who also said that they did not vote for Donald Trump, like John Piper, for example. Um, but furthermore, we have the rise of patriot churches, as they're called. On one extreme, we have um, people like Franklin Graham, who have, have made sure that there's never any visible distance between their own statements and that of, of Donald Trump. Well, President Trump was in office. Uh, so what I would say is that we have seen unprecedented political engagement and political fragmentation uh, in evangelical leadership. In the 1980s and 1990s, one could say that the Christian right was an interest group within the Republican Party. That is, the moral majority was pushing the Republican Party in a particular direction, 
they were successful in terms of the direction they were pushing it, but they were often unsuccessful in terms of particular policies. For example, they, they were really hoping for a, a constitutional school prayer amendment or a constitutional ban on abortion during Reagan's presidency. And of course, they never got either one. Uh, during the 1990s, they were constantly trying to hold uh, the Republicans' feet to the fire uh, under Newt Gingrich's leadership as Speaker of the House. And, and Newt Gingrich was mostly cooperating with them, but, but really not giving them what they wanted. And so you could say, okay, there's, they're an interest group in the same way that we have um, other interest groups like uh, envir um, environmental interest groups and, and LGBT interest groups and others who are always trying to push the Democratic Party in a particular direction or sometimes frustrated when the Democratic Party is instead chooses the political center on, on a particular issue. Um, so that's where the, Repu that's where the Re Republican party was and the Christian right was in, in the, um, the 1990s. At some point in the early 21st century, starting with George W. Bush's administration um, to a certain extent, but continuing beyond that, the, the particular Christian right organizations uh, imploded or mostly closed or lost their their influence. And instead, the Republican Party as a whole began to embrace these, uh, these stances so that by the time of Donald Trump, it was really unclear where to find this particular interest group. It was the Republican Party as a whole. There was, there was very little beyond it um, in terms of a, uh, of a remnant of an old Republican Wall Street interest, for example, uh, which had been the case in, in the late 20th century, where you had had a number of country club Republicans like uh, George H.W. Bush, who, who really didn't want that much to do with the Christian right, but were constantly pressured by the Christian right. But that seems to no longer be the case, at least not visibly. And yet at the same time, because of this political alliance between the Republican Party and conservative evangelicalism, a minority of evangelicals and minority of white evangelicals who said, wait a minute, this is, this is not our political program. We're not part of the Christian right, became far more vocal. And so there was a, actually a, a split within evangelicalism that was, I would say, much more pronounced, much more dramatic than any sort of difference between the Republican Party and the Christian right. Yeah. Um one of the things that sticks out to me when I think of folks like Jerry Falwell, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump is that one very important common theme that all of them have is a TV presence. Um, what impact do you think being a TV personality had on white evangelicals' views on these three folks? Televangelism was growing rapidly in the 1970s. There were I, I guess if you look at Jerry Falwell in particular, he became the megachurch pastor that he was primarily because of his success at uh, projecting himself on the television screen and in person. So beginning in the 1950s, he used local television uh, very effectively. That wasn't his entire secret. He was actually quite a charismatic person in face-to-face uh, -face as well. And so... Uh, he could certainly move crowds in person, but he could then expand his influence nationally uh, because of his, his telegenic presence. So I think it's not an accident that the 
uh, it's not an accident that particular Christian right leaders, for the most part, happened to to also be media personalities. I, I don't think that that's invariably true. And actually, the most effective strategist that the Christian right ever had was someone who preferred to work behind the scenes, and of course, never was a televangelist, and that is Ralph Reed. Um, but in terms of the public face of the Christian right, uh, certainly the rise of televangelism and, and also uh, Christian radio in the late 20th century um, had something to do with, uh, with the influence of this movement. Well, when we think of the television personality differences between Jerry Falwell and Donald Trump, I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty big canyon between those two, right? I mean, you describe Jerry Falwell in your book as someone who, who spoke calmly and with like a, a soothing demeanor and, you know, kind of lulled his audience into this idea of, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't prosperity gospel, but it was this idea of like, everything's going to be okay because Pastor Jerry or uh, Pastor Jerry says it is. Whereas Donald Trump was a rebel rouser and he was constantly, you know, uh, stirring up fights between people, was constantly, you know, denigrating people. Um, what do you think that do you think that people, especially white evangelicals, saw that as, you know, something they could latch on to? And like, the, the, does the difference between their personalities on TV really matter? I think the mood of the country changed markedly from the late 1970s to the second decade of the 21st century. So it's somewhat difficult to compare television styles across those decades. Yeah. yeah. Donald Trump's style reminds me more of the style of a number of uh, right-wing inflammatory broadcasters in the 1930s, many of whom, or several of whom, were religious, Father Coughlin, for example, and some people who are less well-known today, but are part of what uh, is sometimes called the old Christian right, uh, anti-Semitic broadcasters like um, Gerald Winrod, for example. So I do think that there is historical, there's a historical analogy uh, with Donald Trump's style. And while, when you listen to Father Coughlin speak but with old tapes of Father Coughlin. Um, it, there, he's not. He's certainly not exactly like Donald Trump. But nevertheless, that same abrasiveness, that same demeanor, that same um, propensity to shouting and denunciation uh, can certainly be seen. I'm not primarily a historian of. Of media, and I know you have studied that topic you know, probably much more extensively than I have, and so you could probably weigh in here more with with communication styles. But I do think that in the mid twentieth, mid to late twentieth century, nearly every figure of national influence who used oratory uh, to any degree was someone that had that that same calm speaking style. Certainly Ronald Reagan did. Uh, and even when Ronald Reagan was speaking forcefully, like when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. If you listen to the whole clip of that, he his authority comes from the fact that he's very calm. He's not um, unhinged when he's, set, when he's making that statement. Um, in the same way with Martin Luther King, 
um, and to go back to Franklin Roosevelt. And so I, again, as I said, I'm not really a historian of media primarily, but I will say that from what I know, I believe that Franklin Roosevelt introduced a new style of speaking that influenced the next two generations. Um, so before Franklin Roosevelt, you had a lot more shouting um, and that calm demeanor of the fireside chats. And even when Franklin Roosevelt was speaking to a large crowd, that, that calm confidence was one that I think every president after that tried to emulate to one degree or another, some very ineffectively, obviously, uh, Gerald Ford wasn't known for his oratory, for example, but there was no president, even the, in terms of the worst speakers, who was, who was really a, a shouter and, and a fiery rabble rouser for the rest of the 20th century. Um, what it says about America that we're now at a different moment is an interesting question, maybe one that uh, you know, we could ex someone could explore further. Uh, maybe the answers are not always that encouraging, um, but, it, but it does seem like we're perhaps at a different political moment. Um, I would attribute that partly to um, the rise of right-wing talk radio uh, in the late 1980s and beyond uh, with Rush Limbaugh followed by quite a few others. And that style of speaking um, was quite different than that, that calm public oratorical or oratory style. And it's interesting too, to, to think of, you know, when, when, when we think of far right people who are in the media now, I think of folks like Alex Jones, who his whole demeanor is based on this like machismo shouting and like my face is so red that it looks like it's going to explode. And, you know, just this like gruffness and just like, I'm so angry and and Donald Trump takes some of that and tones it down a little bit, but really a lot of what he does and and did was um, kind of just setting setting up these ideas. And when you look at like the birtherism idea, you know he never fully really fully explicitly said like there is not a shadow of doubt in my mind that Barack Obama was not born in America. A lot of times what he would do is he would just say, I don't know. I'm just saying, I'm just throwing it out there. And, and that element, um, that, that, that conspiratorial element, um, just really kind of sticks out to me. Um, and, uh, is, is, has always been very disconcerting to me. I got two more questions for you. I appreciate your time. Um, first question is, and we've kind of answered this a little bit, but to kind of, uh, say it in a little more succinct way, perhaps. How did the Trump campaign fit into the evolution of the white evangelical movement? Donald Trump was initially not popular among Christian right leaders. That is, if you looked at the, the aging veterans of the Christian right who were profiled in my book, people like James Dobson, for example, they were not supportive of Trump in the primaries. Um, notable exceptions would be Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham, the sons of some of the Christian right leaders that I talked about. But uh, really across the board, if you looked at Gary Bauer or other uh, people that, that one would have said based on reading God's own party were the face of the Christian right, they were not early adopters of the Trump philosophy they were suspicious of him. But it was when Trump won the nomination, uh, won the Republican presidential nomination, and particularly when he promised to appoint 
Supreme Court justices from a particular list that was approved by conservatives and particularly the Christian right, because they believed that that was the key to overturning Roe v. Wade, that they began to, to line up behind uh, President Trump. And so I, I would draw several implications from that. One is the, the concern about the Supreme Court, uh, which was there in earlier years, became even more pronounced and to a large extent can explain the outcome of the 2016 presidential election, that for the, the older generation of the Christian right, for the Christian right establishment, presidential elections were all about the Supreme Court. Secondly, what I would say, though, is that President Trump showed that, uh, President Trump's election showed us that the Christian right is actually divided between a leadership that I profiled in God's own party and a much larger grassroots culture that while seemingly following the, the lead of people like Dobson and Falwell and others had their own concerns as well, particularly concerns over immigration. There was a, a populist economic agenda and to a certain extent, their vision of politics was much more akin to the European far right uh, that is, that's very heavily nationalist, very heavily anti-immigrant, than it would be to the Christian right. And that was somewhat of a surprise to me. I think if I were to write a history of, of the right or the Christian right since um, the election of Barack Obama, I would have to talk at much greater length than I ever did in, the, uh, in God's own party about that, that tension. I, I think there were moments when we should have seen it earlier. And I, I did mention a few of those in God's own party, such as the campaign of, of Pat Buchanan in 1992. Um, but I think it, it's worth noting that the concerns of the Christian right leaders, while certainly overlapping with the concerns of people on the ground, were not always identical. And ultimately, President Trump proved to be a better judge of what uh, people wanted at the grassroots than some of the Christian right leaders did. And the, so his coalition included the, the older generation of Christian right leaders, but, but they were not exercising nearly the same amount of influence that they had before. They were essentially followers of this coalition rather than leaders as they had been before. And I think that that President Trump's election also proved that a lot of evangelicals were motivated very heavily by fear. Uh, this fear had come out at previous points as well, and there it had always been part of what had driven the Christian right. But to a large extent, the election of 2016 and by extension 2020 showed that many evangelical, many white evangelicals were willing to make almost any moral compromise because they wanted someone who would defend their interests and and they believed that this was the the last opportunity just to, to preserve religious freedom uh, it was the last opportunity to save whatever vestige of a moral agenda that they could they could save remarkably even after winning that election and having what to outsiders looked like full control of government that is for a 
brief moment, both houses of Congress were Republican. The Supreme Court uh, was mostly conservative. And of course, the White House was in Republican hands. And yet, despite that, the there was a great deal of anxiety, a great deal of fear. The rhetoric from most people associated with the Christian right that I heard was far from triumphalist. And I think that goes back to what I, that, that tends to confirm what I said in, on the last page of God's Own Party, which is that while conservative Christians can win control of a party, that doesn't necessarily allow them to reverse a cultural direction in the nation as a whole. And that the, the more success that evangelicals have had in capturing control of, of the GOP, ironically, the more frustrated they've become as they've seen their inability to stop cultural trends that they consider objectionable. And so if we look at the, the overall trends in American culture, while one could certainly find areas where some people, some of President Trump's critics have perhaps rightly said that he contributed to polarization, he poisoned the national discourse. If we look specifically at the areas that were of historic concern to the Christian right, such as same-sex marriage, LGBT rights, uh, abortion, the, the last four years have not looked substantially different than the four years before that. In other words, the trend lines, the cultural trend lines, um, whatever they were, have mostly continued unabated. A presidential administration is not going to change that. What do you think, you, you talked about this and it really sticks with me. What is the driving factor behind being a party opposed to immigration? I don't think that that's coming from evangelical theology. In fact, I'm quite certain that it's not. If you look at the theological statements of evangelicals, whether it's the National Association of Evangelicals or you look at Christianity Today magazine or you look at um popular evangelical writings on this, um, or even if you look at historically the stance of the Southern Baptist Convention, there's, there's not really a lot of overt anti-immigrant sentiment. In fact, quite the opposite. There's quite a lot of discussion of the phrase loving the stranger, um, loving the sojourner, and which are uh, biblical phrases coming from certain um, passages from the Old Testament. So in general, theologically, evangelicalism has, has not been resistant to immigration. And indeed, historically, the Republican Party wasn't. Uh, during President Reagan's time in office, for example, the, the uh, immigration laws were uh, reformed in ways that, that included amnesty for a number of undocumented immigrants who were in the United States. And there was a lot of public rhetoric uh, with Reagan about uh, opening the door, about welcoming immigrants in this being part of the American story. So I think rather the, the pressure has come from a, a cultural right that has parallels with other eras in American history. The 1920s and 1930s, for example, were um, remarkably anti-immigrant in terms of, of both law and public sentiment. And in some ways, it seems like we are returning to that moment. I do think that many of the people who are in the coalition 
against immigration are white evangelicals. But it, it's striking to me that that this was never part of the moral majority's agenda, for instance, um, in the 1980s. It was never part of the Christian coalition's agenda in the 1990s. Uh, it's something that, again, illustrates this phenomenon that I mentioned, that the, the grassroots populist right, while it's definitely a Christian right, it's not it's quite distinct from the Christian right uh, that I wrote about. It's a different type of Christian right. It's a type of Christian right that's, that's, ha, that has a religion that's much um, more cultural in nature, much less theologically specific. So in the Moral Majority's 10 Points, for example, they could cite Bible verses that whether they applied them rightly or wrongly, could be used to <laughs> talk about abortion and homosexuality yeah. and support for Israel and other matters. But the, the anti-immigrant coalition is um, much less able to do that and much less interested in doing that. They're not necessarily drawing on a particular religious tradition. Um, and to the extent that, that they use religious rhetoric, it's more of a Christian nationalist rhetoric than a, a specifically evangelical uh, rhetoric of morality. Yeah. It's, it's hard to base your, it's hard to base one of your platforms on being anti-immigration when the leader of your religion was himself an immigrant Mm -hmm. in a foreign land. Um, So that seems a little troubling to me. Um, the last last question I have for you here, what can the election and presidency of Donald Trump tell us about the future of the Republican Party? I think we're still trying to figure that out. And so are many of the Republicans in Washington. As best as I can tell, there's likely to be a splintering um, of the Republican Party, perhaps not a, a true split in the party in the sense that a new third party emerges. So that's not entirely impossible, but but certainly a time period where the the party fractures internally between a group of people who would like to preserve something of the of the Reagan Bush Republican Party, uh, who want to who want the party to once again become the party of business and small government and fiscal conservatism and a much larger coalition that is driven by the populism of Donald Trump, both the charisma of Donald Trump, but also the ideas that preceded Donald Trump's rise. They go back to the Tea Party and and earlier incarnations as well uh, for decades, the Republican Party has become increasingly dependent on the votes of of rural whites. Uh, One could see that as early as the 1990s, uh, the the last presidential election in which the Democrats really were competitive in a presidential election in rural white counties was the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. But by 1996, the last of those rural whites had already become Republican. And so George W. Bush would never have been elected president had it not been for high margins that he, of support that he received in rural areas, including his opponent's own home state of Tennessee, which he carried in the 
2000 election. Had he not carried that state, of course, Al Gore would have been president. Uh, there wouldn't have been a need for a Supreme Court decision on Florida. <laughs> so the the Republican Party force for a number of years tried to balance the the votes of rural whites with those of suburban whites. They needed both in their coalition. And increasingly, the, the rural whites became more unhappy with the direction of the Republican Party. They did not like the neoconservatives. They did not, uh, they did not believe that the Republican Party really represented their, their interests. And, and the Tea Party was an early effort, I think, to try to, to I guess, change the direction of the, of the Republican Party. It wasn't driven exclusively by rural whites, but it was driven by a number of people who, who were uh, populist in their economic thinking, according to the, the best research that I've read, the best social science research that I've read on, say, the Tea Party in 2010. And they were certainly anti-immigrant. The Tea Party had some success, uh, limited success, maybe less success than they, they wanted to in terms of, of changing the Republican Party. But then with the election of Donald Trump, there was a full party takeover. And in some ways, what I'm seeing here in the period from 2016 to now 2021 is very much analogous to what happened in the, the 80s and 90s with the Christian right. That is, the Christian right was unhappy with the direction of the Republican Party. It essentially took over the party. And now we have the same thing going on with, uh, with this economically populist right. It's still too early to say exactly what will happen, but it's possible that we'll see a replay of something that happened to the Republican Party in the, from the late 20th century to the first decade of the 21st century. That is, as the Christian right conservatives took over the Republican Party, the last of the Northeastern Republican moderates left the party. Uh, and by 2004, there really was no significant Republican, competitive Republican party uh, in certain areas of the country, both the West Coast and, and uh, the New England area, the Northeast, New York as well. Uh, and so it's possible that we could see that same thing happen with the Republican Party today. That is, the Republican Party may lose the suburbs. Um, they may lose college-educated white voters who've, who've long supported the Republican Party. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, there are certain people in the Republican Party, obviously, that would like to reverse that. And currently, it's, it's unclear um, what, the, what the end result will be. Yeah. Do you imagine we'll see less Liz Cheney's and more Marjorie Taylor Greens in the coming years? I think it's quite possible. I mean, certainly in the late 1990s, there was, in the late 1990s, a number of, of people were elected um, to Congress and to governorships that were viewed as the, the socially conservative wing of the party um, that appeared to be taking over. Those people included Jeb Bush, who was considered a, a pretty strong social conservative in the late 1990s. It's sort of hard to, hard to believe you know, by the 2016 yeah. primary that he was on the right wing of his party in, when he was elected governor uh, in the late 1990s, but, but he was. Uh, and so there was a question among people like um, Olympia Snow and 
Jim Jeffords and uh, Pete Wilson and you know a number of people who were who were pro-choice Republicans who um, had very different stances. Is this going to be the face of our party? And and of course the answer turned out to be yes. Um, that the the moment for significant disagreement over those those social issues had had really uh, disappeared. The Republican Party was was moving in a certain direction, and and a lot of people like um, uh, Lincoln Chafee left the party, or others just like Olympia Snow just um, left politics, and and uh, the except for you know very few small holdouts like Susan Collins, the the party essentially moved in one direction. So it's quite possible that that could happen here. Um, in fact, I would say that's probably the most likely outcome given the numbers involved. It's much more difficult to imagine how a minority of Republicans, and we are looking at a pretty small minority of people who are vocally anti-Trump in the Republican Party right now. It's it's much more difficult to imagine how they would, I guess, resist, successfully resist this overwhelming juggernaut of uh, voters who are inclined to push the Republican Party in a particular direction. So my guess is what we'll just see is that in those districts that have been inclined to vote for what now are called moderate Republicans, what even five years ago would have been called conservative Republicans, but but the people who are anti-Trump Republicans, those districts are probably just not going to remain Republican anymore. Places like um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, for example, you know, long a bastion of Republican support probably will not be one anymore. Uh, the Northeast, of course, as I said, is long since abandoned the Republican Party, except in small pockets. But uh, but now, even in the um, in the South, I suspect you're going to find uh, suburban Atlanta, um, not exurban Atlanta, not not the uh, the the places that are more rural, but but the immediate suburbs, Cobb County, um, are not not going to remain um, in the Republican Party. Yeah, it's interesting. We saw a little bit of this in the Democratic Party, too. In the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a guy who was the choir director at the church that I grew up in, who was a U.S. congressman in southern Illinois. The district uh, got swallowed up in 2000 and got merged and essentially turned into everything... It's like a everything south of Interstate 64 in Illinois turned into one congressional district, and he was a blue dog Democrat. He was socially conservative, fiscally liberal, and you know for a time you could be a Democrat. And you know Southern Illinois is there; it's completely empty and void of big cities, and so it just started turning more and more red. If he if he were to run for Congress now under the same ideals that he ran for as a Democrat in 1996, he'd be a Republican. And, uh, and it's so interesting to see how, you know, it's easy to look at the Republican party and to see, wow, how far have they shifted? Right. But the same is true for Democrats too, that, you know, his, his daughter tried to run for a state representative seat, like on the statewide and, you know, her two big platforms were she was pro-gun and pro-life. It's like, honey, you're not a you're not a Democrat, you're, especially in Illinois. You're not going to win as a Democrat right. with those policies. But because her father ran as a Democrat and her family has long been Democrats, you know, they they saw they found it really important to run as Democrats. And she got blasted. She got beat by 65 points. And the reality is that politics Politics shift, and and right now I think we're definitely in a shift of moving away from the middle, and 
you know, it may be 10 or 15 years before we really start to move back to the middle in both parties. So, right. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon because I think, um, I think you're right. Uh, a generation ago, what defined the Democrats first and foremost was a, an economic agenda. That is you, you would never find a, a Democrat with uh I guess New Gingrich's economic views, for example. Right. Uh, but you could find a, a wide variety of views on the social questions. Obviously, it, it was predominantly um, socially liberal, but there were substantial wings, especially at the congressional level, not so much at the senatorial level or presidential level, but especially at the congressional level, where um, you could find people that were very socially conservative on nearly all the issues, uh, certainly including abortion, certainly including guns, that um, but united around the economic platform. And the same was true in the Republican Party. The Republican Party marketed itself as a, a party of fiscal conservatism. Different people interpreted it differently. That is, do you, do you um, favor uh, balanced budgets above everything else or do you favor tax cuts above everything else? And there was some internal debate over exactly what type of fiscal conservatism. But, but essentially, um, as long as you were some sort of fiscally conservative, some sort of fiscal conservative, you could be a Republican, whether you were pro-choice or not. Um, and there were people that were extremely pro-choice, like Bob Packwood, for example, um, in the 80s and 90s. But I think what has happened is that the two parties have no longer defined themselves primarily by economics. Um, certainly the Republican Party is not. And I think in the Democratic Party, there's a fairly wide spectrum on uh, economic policy within within certain limits. But there's much more unanimity on the social and cultural issues, much less tolerance for disagreement. And that includes not only the issues that I mentioned um, that I focused on in God's own party, though it certainly does include those, but it also includes issues like guns and, and uh, a wide variety of other um, issues as well. And as a result, the the two parties no longer appeal at all to the same constituencies. It used to be that if you were uh, lower income, you were much more likely to vote Democratic. Um, but now education and income uh, are really not an effective predictor or even they, they work contrary to the ways that they've traditionally worked. That is, if you are, um, if you hold a graduate degree, for example, you're much more likely to vote Democratic. If you are a, a, a white uh, high school dropout or person with only a high school diploma, um, you're overwhelmingly likely to vote Republican, particularly if you're male, but, but to a certain extent, even if, if you're female. So uh, I think we are seeing um, shifts that are continuing, ongoing. I, we're at a very different place in terms of how voters line up than we would have been even in the first decade of the 21st century. And I think those, those trends will probably continue um, to play out in, in ways that do um, create a realignment. We, we've already seen most of this realignment, I think, play out. But over the next few years, we're likely to see um, the full implications of it becoming even more visible. Do you think Trump runs for president in 2024? Uh, I think that could depend on so many factors that are difficult to predict. I, 
I'm more, I'm more confident predicting the continued salience of the coalition that he created. I think that's, that transcends Trump. I think Trump was very important in galvanizing it, but just as Reagan was a, was an agent of the Reagan revolution, but the Reagan revolution depended on factors that went well beyond Reagan. So Trump's re-engineering of American politics has depended on factors that are, that go well beyond Trump, which is one of the reasons why even with, uh, with Trump mostly uh, silent for a few weeks, the, the coalition hasn't disappeared. Um, they haven't simply yeah. gone off to wander in the wilderness or, or recant. Uh, instead, it's, it's a coalition that I think um, is looking for a leader. As long as Trump appears to be that leader, it's probably going to revolve around Trump. But the moment that another leader emerges or that Trump becomes irrelevant for whatever reason, whether it's um, imprisonment, possibly, uh, you know, not, <laughs> not, maybe not likely, but you know, possibly, or some other factor, uh, Certainly legal I, repercussions. <laughs> right. Um, I think, you know, he'll, he'll definitely spend the next uh, few months or years uh, worrying about that, um, trying to figure out how to defend himself. But, uh, you know, I think he's he obviously was a more effective communicator with that particular constituency and indeed recognized the existence of that constituency in ways that no previous pro- politician um had done to the same degree, but could another person continue to lead that constituency? I think the answer is quite likely yes. Um, obviously, it's a um, it would have to be a person with us uh, with some unique political qualities. But I suspect now that people have now that people have seen how it's done, um, I suspect there will be other people who are only too eager to capitalize on it. Yeah, maybe other people with the last name of Trump. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's all I have. I, uh, I'm i super grateful for uh, all the time that you've given me. Um, this has been really, really helpful and beneficial. And, uh, and I appreciate the work that you've done. Thanks, Matthew. Um, good talking with you. Yes, thank you so much. Likewise. Thanks for checking out the Deluxe Edition. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at the link in the show notes. Our theme song is Apophenia by Ross Christopher. I'm really excited to share next week's interview. I spoke with a woman who has been writing about Donald Trump since the 1980s. Next week, my conversation with Gwenda Blair. Thanks for listening. <laughs>